0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: If the worst thing happened to you, if things went uh, suddenly came undone, if things went terribly wrong, what's your worst fear? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? And when people answer that question, they come up with this, what I call, this very deep thread of this core language. For example, the answer that could be, I'll be all alone, there'll be no one there, or I'll be betrayed, or, or uh, I'll be powerless, or I'll be helpless, or I'll be annihilated, or I'll be destroyed. That type of language you know, comes from early trauma with with attachment. So I've discovered, Srini, there's two types of this core language. There's attachment language that comes from either our attachment with our mom, her attachment with her mom, or our dad's attachment with his mom. And I call that early trauma core sentences, early attachment core sentences.
0: Mark,
2: welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Srini. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your book, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle uh, at the recommendation of a girl that I wanted to date with. And, you know, I've read tons and tons of self-help books trying to solve many of my problems, and this was one of the few that I really, honestly, I came out of it and thought, wow, I have never gotten so much clarity from a book. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking what I think is a very relevant question given the subject matter of your work, and that is, what is one of the most important things that you learn from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've
1: become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Ah, uh, that is a good question. I've never been asked it before. Uh, I would say my father took things apart. Uh, he was very mechanical, and I would sit and watch him do this. He would build things and take things apart. And, and I think that, in a sense, um, I feel that I'm doing the same thing, taking a story apart when I'm working with people and looking at the deepest intricacies. In, you know, in some ways, I see myself as the, the guy with the flashlight shining it on the you know, the symptoms and the behaviors that we can't explain. So yeah. w- w- whether I'm working with um, clinicians or non-clinicians, you know, it's really to dig into this area that's relatively new, you know, this idea of generational trauma and its uh-huh. biological effects. And I, yeah. I Thank you for that question. I never had that question yeah. before.
2: Well, so it makes me wonder, right? You went and decided to start taking human beings apart, at least their stories and their mindsets. But most people might look at a parent taking things apart and think, oh, I'm going to become an engineer or somebody who builds things. Wh- like, how in the world did it lead you down this path of all things um, to uh, become somebody who does what you do?
1: I, uh, a, the answer to that is twofold. One is always a deep curiosity um, of the intric- intricacies of things. Things, but the, the deeper answer is I I fell apart. I lost my eyesight um, in one of my eyes. Um, probably, oh, I don't know, as a young man, maybe 30, I began to lose the vision in one of my eyes. And, you know, the doctors um, told me that I had a, a rare form of, of retinopathy uh, for which there, there was no cure and uh they they couldn't give me anything the best they could tell me is we think it's stress <laughs> So, and i i couldn't figure out where that stress was coming from and um i had no idea what to do and because of the way the the vision was progressing um they told me i was likely going to lose the vision in my other eye as well and i was Desperate to find help. And uh, I went on a search for healing, one that led me halfway around the globe, literally as as far as um, Indonesia, where I learned from several wise teachers who taught me some fundamental principles. uh, Principles were not taught here, one of which was the importance of healing my broken relationship with my parents. Um, Mm -hmm. But before I could do that, you know, I had to heal what stood in the way. Um, though I didn't know it at the time, which would have been inherited family trauma. I had no clue that's what I was on a search for. But specifically yeah. the, the anxiety that, you know, that I'd inherited from my grandparents, um, all of whom were orphaned in some way. Three of them lost their mothers when they were infants or toddlers. And the fourth, she lost her father when she was one. So ultimately, she as well loses her mother and the grief. And this, this anxiety, this was the real cause of my vision loss. You know, I have a little story that, that I, you know, I just remember um, being five or six years old. And every time my mom would leave the house, I would, I would panic. And I, I didn't know that I'd inherited this feeling of being broken from a mother's love, because that's ultimately what lives in the family and um, five or six, running, panicked, she's gone, I'm running into her bedroom every time she'd leave the house, and I'm going into her room, and I'm pulling open her drawers, and I'm literally crying into her scarves and her nightgowns, thinking that I'd never see her again, and all I would have left would be her smell. Now, I don't connect this till years later, but that would have been the experience of my grandparents, all little babies having nothing left but maybe their mom's house coat or a blanket. Forty years later, I I share this with my mom. She told me um, she did the exact same thing when her mother left the house. And then my sister, reading the book, said, Honey, that's what I would do when mom would leave the house. And, you know, that was a family pattern. This brokenness from the mother, uh, for me, it expressed in losing my vision. Uh, they They said stress, but they were right. It was the terror of aloneness. And after healing the broken bond, the broken attachment with my mom, uh, my sight came back. And then afterwards, I felt compelled uh, to, to, to share these principles I learned. And ultimately, I developed a method for healing the effects of inherited family trauma.
2: No. All of which we will get into um, one thing I wonder, uh, and this is fresh on my mind because tomorrow I'm interviewing a, a man who's who's actually been blind for uh, most of his life. How did um, having your vision compromised change your vision for what was possible with your life?
1: Well, none of the old answers made any sense, so you know I've, I remember back then trying well I can just fix fix this, heal this. I can go to an acupuncturist. I can take supplements. I can go to a hands-on healer. I can go to a different type of doctor. I can go to an alternative doctor. And what was so funny is everything I did um, made things worse. Um, Not because they weren't doing their job. It was because I wasn't doing my job. The real job was that something was broken in me and every direction every path led me back into myself into what I wasn't seeing you know it's a quick metaphor right your your eyes your eyes are blind and the quick metaphor is what can't you see but in this case it was quite true Um, I couldn't see um, what I was doing with the pain I was feeling how I was avoiding it how I wasn't able to stay inside the uh, uncomfortable feelings of great aloneness, um, the terror that I'd experienced. Instead, I walked around as a shaking, uh, vibrating teenager uh, and and young man in my 20s, literally, with panic attacks. I remember back then I was carrying uh, a Valium in my pocket um, in case I had one of these utter panic attacks. So the work itself led me to look at what lived beneath my shaking what lived beneath my terror and that's what led me to look in um into a deeper relationship with my parents and then a deeper understanding of what occurred in my family history and it was all quite accidental
2: So you know, you open the book by saying that the answer may not lie within our own story as much as in the stories of our parents, grandparents, and even our great-grandparents. The latest scientific research now making headlines also tells us that the effects of human trauma can pass from one generation to the next. That's a real anomaly in sort of the culture of self-development and psychology and therapy because one of the things you hear over and over and over is, oh, you need to take 100% responsibility for all the things that have happened in your life, yet you're not even the one who had anything to do with many of the things that have happened in your life.
1: So how do you resolve those two paradoxes? You know, the best way I can answer that is to tell a story. Um, my first case that led me to look into this direction of inherited family trauma. Sure. I'm doing the work on my own at this point, but I don't know how to do this with a client. And I remember, uh, Oh my goodness! Uh, again, almost 30 years ago, 20, you know, the, I'm working with a a young woman, 24 years old, um, a cutter, and there was something unusual about the way that she cut. She would cut so deeply that she would hit a vessel, a vein, an artery. She'd almost bleed to death, and her parents would have to rush her to the hospital um, because. She was going to bleed out, and then they'd lock her in a psych ward for um, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks at a time. And I I was flummoxed; I wasn't able to help her. She um, she was flummoxed, not knowing why she cut so deeply. And then one day, when she got out of the psych ward, I handed her a pen, and I said, uh, "I'm going to call her Sarah for the sake of this talk." I said, "Sarah, take this pen." and imagine, visualize it's the knife that you use to cut your arms, your legs, your abdomen, and just hold it to your body. And tell me what happens when you have that knife right close to your body. And so she brings this pen close to her arm. And in that moment, I could see, you know, she starts to glaze over, she starts to dissociate. And I said, right there, right there, what's that? What's that feeling? What's that thought? What's that urge? What's that impulse? And and she said, looked at me, flummoxed herself, and said, I, I, I don't deserve to live? And, and Srini, here I am looking at a 24-year-old woman whose life has just begun. And I said, well, what did you do? Did you take somebody's life? Did you cause an accident? Did you break up with somebody uh, who took his or her life? Well, what happened? And she said, nothing like that. So I did the usual stuff, what I knew how to do back then. I looked at her relationship with her parents. I looked in her childhood. Her childhood, I looked at her attachment. And again, no answer. Um, she had a great relationship with her mom. She was able to receive her mom's love and nurturance and care. Um, she adored her mom. Uh, she had a great relationship with her dad. She could receive his love. Then I, I figured it had to be in the attachment. I looked at her early relationship, and again, strong, safe, secure attachment with her mom. I was flummoxed, and luckily, I asked the next question. Uh, I, say, I said to her, um, Okay, well then tell me about your grandparents. And boom, she dropped the bomb. Her grandmother was an alcoholic, and she was driving the car drunk one day. And, gran- and this is her father's parents. And the grandfather was in the passenger seat. And Grandma, drunk, crashes into a pole. Grandpa goes through the window, the windshield, and gets cut, lacerated on the glass, and bleeds to death before the ambulance arrives. And in that moment, we made an incredible connection that when she cuts, she's mirroring something about the grandfather who bleeds to death. And she's feeling like the grandmother who deserves to die, who doesn't deserve to live, for killing somebody, taking the life of her her beloved, and in that moment, um, because I had been trained in a bunch of uh, psychodrama modalities, I put two chairs in the room, and I had her tell her grandpa and her grandma what she was doing uh, it, it was interesting, I said, you know, Sarah, tell your grandfather that you cut yourself so deeply that you almost bleed to death. Like he, and then add the words, like you did, Grandpa. And she's crying. And she, she, I said, so what's happening? And she says, he doesn't want me to do this. He says, every time I go to cut myself, think of him supporting me, being with me. And, and he'll, he'll be there. And I I thought, wow, this is great. (laughs) She's got a resource out of this chair. And, you know, I have no idea what what I'm developing at this point. This is 30 years ago. And then I said, well, Mm -hmm. tell your grandmother the same thing. Tell her that, you know, that you feel you deserve to die. But, Grandma, that's your feeling. And, again, these grandparents she's never met are telling her they'll be there to support her. And every time she goes to cut to feel them there and you know, I could, I could go on and on, Srini, but the bottom line yeah. is I begin to develop this insight, this pathway into the stories of the past, into stories mm-hmm. that happened before we were born, and how yeah. they're still alive in our life, in our lives. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, along the way, of course, then, yes, I developed this model of working, but it's quite accidental.
2: Yeah. What I wonder is why has it taken, you started the research you said over 30 years ago, but you know, what have we done? We've built a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry that basically pumps us full of antidepressants and drugs to deal with our mental health. Um, We know that we have a huge mental health crisis pretty much across the board in this country, everywhere from schools to Silicon Valley to sort of the the working world. Um, But yet knowing this, why has this not become more prevalent in sort of modern mental
1: health? Because this takes time. Because, you know, I I want (laughs) to... Yeah, right. It's not the 10 or 15 minute, how are you doing, let me give you more meds. Um, You know, it it takes... You know, when I do a session with people, it's uh, uh, two two hours long. You know, Mm -hmm. and in that session, you know, there's a lot of um, work to... There's a lot of story to dig through, a lot of... uh, you know, I re- remember in the book, I talk about the four unconscious themes, the four ways mm-hmm. in which, yeah. you know, I've, when I'm working with somebody, I have to figure out which of these four pathways um, is, is in operation here. And, yeah. you know, and in the book, I'm teaching somebody how to be a de- detective of his or her mm-hmm. own trauma language to come up with this. Yeah. To, to, so, you know, uh, it takes time. We, we, yeah. And we often need a guide. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 was in, in the pre talk that you and I had, you told me you figured out, um, some things in your own by reading the book. It's so awesome. You did that. And that's yeah. why I wrote this book for, so, you know, cause not everybody has access to, um, uh, a therapist. So I thought, okay, write a book that people can go from A to Z on their own. And that mm-hmm. was my intention. Yeah.
2: Well, you you say that it's not only what we inherit from our parents, but also how they were parented. that influences how we relate to a partner, how we relate to ourselves and how we nurture our children for better or worse. Parents tend to pass on the same parenting they themselves received. Absolutely. It's funny. I mean, I have a, a somewhat complicated relationship with my mother, you know, she, she means well most of the time, but we definitely have our differences and it was kind you know, and sometimes she nags about really stupid things, things that I think are incredibly unimportant that are just like, you know, stuff related to cleaning the house. And I remember when my grandmother was visiting and I was watching the two of them interact. And my grandmother was asking her about lighting some sort of candle in the puja room. And my grandmother must have asked her like a hundred times in the day. And I looked at both of them and I was like, holy shit. I was like, now I know where this comes from. It was yeah. just like, I can't believe that I am seeing this, you know, unfold before my eyes. Um, but it sounds to me, I think every one of us, even though we hear that, I can't tell you how many people say, okay, you know what, I definitely am not going to do the things that my parents have done. i and mean, I've asked friends about this. Do you ever find yourself being exactly what you said you wouldn't be? Uh, I mean, it sounds to me like we can overcome those
1: patterns. You know, I, I always like to say that it isn't so much the traumas in our family history in and of themselves, but it's how they affect and limit parenting. So grandma or grandpa goes through some very severe difficulties or misfortunes or traumas in his life, her life. And this has a tremendous effect on what they could give to our mother, or what they could give to our father, and then um, then the parent turns to us with um, uh, I- inabilities to give what they didn't get, and mm-hmm. so I, I, I- I forget your question already. but, but yeah,
2: it was more a, more a comment than a question, but yeah, no, uh, no no, no do-
1: but, but it's a great I'm glad that you you know you got that out of the book, you know, because ultimately, uh, no matter what trauma lives in the family history, how uh-huh. did it affect your mom's ability to bond with you? because mm-hmm. we know from the the science, that you know, one of the most replicated studies in all of epigenetics is separating little baby mice from their mothers and, and then seeing the effects for three generations. And, wow. and that, that's so startling to me because what I've learned, even in those studies, but also in the field working with people, is we don't just have our attachment history with our mom to look at. We've got our mom's history with her mom and our dad's history with his mom to, to look at, too, mm-hmm. because those are heritable. So the broken yeah. relationship our mom had with her mother lives in our body as a wound that's passed forward. So, you mm-hmm. know, we don't always know whose trauma it is we're working with. Um, trauma's yeah. there. Yeah.
2: So you talk in chapter four about this idea of the core language approach, and you say, we don't realize the breadcrumbs of our core language are all around us. They live in the words we speak aloud and ones spoken in silence. They live in the words that go off continually in our heads like the alarm clock. But instead of following them to see where they lead we may be paralyzed by the trance these words create inside us. Now, traditional self-help pretty much bullshits you with things like, oh, just say a bunch of you know, affirmations and overcome all that nonsense. And you actually have a very different take on this. You say the intense <laughs> or urgent word we use to describe our deepest fears. That's our core language. Can you expand on that for people who are listening who may not have read the book? Like, What is core language and how does it affect our experience of our lives?
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm sort of doing the opposite of affirmations in a way. I'm having us dig up the very difficult language um, because I've discovered, no. I've discovered that when a trauma happens, clue, clues are left behind. Clues in the form of uh, emotionally charged words and sentences that live inside us, and and I found that they form like uh, they form a breadcrumb trail. If we learn how to listen to it, if we learn how to follow this breadcrumb trail, it's like finding the missing piece of the puzzle, uh, which lets the whole picture come into view, and then finally gives us a context for uh, for. Why we feel the way we feel, look, if if we look at trauma theory, we know that when a traumatic event happens to us, significant information bypasses the frontal lobes. So the experience of exactly what happened can't can't be named or or ordered in words because our language centers have become compromised, and, and our memory centers have become compromised. And then, without this, language, our experiences, the experiences of a trauma, they're stored as fragments of memory, uh, fragments of body sensations, fragments of images, fragments of language, emotions. It's like the mind disperses, and these essential elements, they get separated. So we lose the story of the trauma in a way we remember too much or we remember too little, and we never complete the healing. Yet these pieces aren't lost. They've simply as I talk about in that book, uh, they've, they've simply been rerouted and they can resurface yeah. in our verbal and our nonverbal trauma language. So going back to, you know, Sarah, who I talked about a few minutes ago, her verbal trauma language is, I don't deserve, to, I won't deserve to live or I don't deserve to live. I deserve yeah. to die. And I'm thinking, holy cow, what kind of, why is she saying that? And that's her verbal trauma language. Her nonverbal trauma language is the fact that she cuts herself so deeply that she's almost bleeding to death. So there's these mm-hmm. two streams of language. When it's nonverbal, we look for the physical and emotional symptoms that show up, that show up after an unsettling event. Or we look for the fears of, and anxieties that strike suddenly when we, you know, when we reach a particular age. Often it's the same age that something traumatic happened in our family history. Or we look for the depression, the the destructive behaviors that, that show up after a situation that's similar to some trauma in our family history that we don't even know. It could be in a generation before us or two generations ago.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, when I sat down and kind of identified my core language and sort of we'll get into sort of the unconscious themes, I came to this conclusion of I'm going to die alone or I'm never going to find real love. And I'm like, where the hell does this come from? And it's funny because here's what was odd to me when I sat down and did this map. And we'll we'll talk about that map in a second. I knew about all these events. I just never put them into this context to say, oh, my God, that's where it comes from. Um, You know, like I'd seen. Literally every grandparent ended up, you know, losing their significant other early in their life, both from my dad's and my mom's side. I'd seen multiple, some of the first time, you know, particularly because divorces are uncommon in Indian families, but I saw weddings that didn't happen that were planned, first time divorces, marriages that didn't work out. And I couldn't believe how often I'd seen all of these things around me yet Mm -hmm. until I sat down and did this. I never realized that that's, this was literally everywhere in my life.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's brilliant work that you did to, to uncover that. Uh, we know the stories we know them um very often you know they've been talked about when we were children you know they they were spoken about a couple times you know to you know but they were we were told never to speak about them or or we were you know uh, you know again this reminds me of a case i recently worked with his with his woman um and she knows what happens in her family but she doesn't connect it she was diagnosed with cancer a few months after her dog died. So as I'm working with her, you know, I'm talking about the dog. Tell me about your dog. And and she said, "Well, he was I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me." And so I write this down because that sentence, I was with him for 16 years, he was everything to me, you know, I've learned over these years to listen to this language, this trauma language. And then I start asking about her family history, and get this, Srini, her mother's favorite brother, dies in a car accident, and he, the mother was sixteen, and this was her favorite brother. He was everything to her, and so she was with him sixteen years. And then even her father was sixteen when his father, um, died. Suddenly of a massive stroke, and he was with him for sixteen years, so the client who's an only child carries the unre- unresolved grief of both parents and then her mm. her verbal that 's her verbal language her nonverbal language is having health issues arise um, after her 16 year old dog dies this is her so yeah. I, i'm listening as the um, uh, clinician i'm listening to our just like you did, our verbal and our nonverbal trauma language, because it's telling the whole story.
4: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?
5: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Let's talk about these four unconscious themes that you talk about. You talk about merging with a parent, rejecting a parent, experience a break in the early bond with a mother, or identifying with a member of the family system other than our parents. <clears throat> the reason this struck me in particular is because this is something, And I, I know that you've referenced Bruce Lipton's work in this book as well, who we've had as a guest here on Unmistakable Creative. And I asked him this question. I want to ask you this question because I, I'm curious based on sort of your experience with this. Um, I was born uh, in 1978 and my dad left uh, before I was born because he had to start a PhD in Australia. So, my dad wasn't actually there when I was born, and I didn't see him until I think I was three or four months old. And my mom apparently went into a pretty severe postpartum depression because at that time it was difficult to make phone calls. You know, it was really expensive to call from India. And what I wonder, you know, based on your experiences, what kind of impact that would have on my
1: adult life? So, the first thing I would look at would be the break in the attachment with your mother. Because remember, and I said a little earlier, but I want to say it again, it's so important. Yes, there are hundreds or dozens or multiple traumas in our family history. But not all these traumas have a, uh, an effect on us um, directly. But the, one of the most direct paths is these traumas limit what our parents could receive or limit what we could receive. So there's this trauma. Your mom goes into a postpartum depression when you're uh, a couple months old and now all of a sudden uh, her light the light that she shines on her baby you is dimmed by the heavy feelings of i miss him or i can't talk to him will i ever see him again is he being faithful is he is he coming back how am i doing this alone i don't have i don't have enough support and though that would shine a, a dimmer light on the baby's um would likely, I can't say for sure, would likely shine a dimmer light on what this baby at this crucial time, this very important time for neural development needs. He needs mom's uh, light to be more bright rather than dimmed by a postpartum depression. So one of the four themes I talk about is a break in the attachment with our mom, which occurs when there are early events really i look from conception to age 10 um events that would challenge the safety and security of the of the child um you know when mum's connection is cut off we you and i have difficulty trusting the feeling of who we are inside that that's because the child's inner experience of himself is dependent on mum's attunement And when we have a break in the bond with our mother, because she has postpartum depression, dad goes away, um, we also, in a sense, have a break in the bond with ourselves. You know, uh, the psychoanalyst Heinz Kohat, he talks about how the gleam in our mother's eye is the vehicle through which we develop in a healthy way. And when we're cut off from our mom's presence because she emotionally is not feeling very good, we're also cut off from our core. Our gut feelings, our our inner experience of ourselves, Or, you know, we you know, when mom's depressed or not in sync with us, the message is to the baby is something's wrong. Or if she's afraid, I'm afraid. And if her attention is diverted because of stress, or you know, we panic, where did she go? Or or I don't matter, or I'm not enough, or I'm too much, ultimately, you know, we we feel something must be wrong with me because she's not present. And as early as in utero, we learn to either organize around her feelings. If I make mom feel okay, then I'll be okay. Or we stop trusting her love. We stop trusting Mm -hmm. receiving from her. And then we yearn for that security that that a mother gives. It's missing the dopamine, really, that's missing in the uh, brain's reward motivation circuitry. And then We search outside ourselves and blah, 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 you know. So, yes, one of my four themes is, did something early happen, like a postpartum depression, that broke Uh our connection from trusting our mom's love?
2: Hmm. So on that note I have to ask you a question that is just out of morbid curiosity. So you know I for a long time had this sort of envious feeling uh, of the bond that my sister and my dad have and I realized I was like there's no way I'm ever going to compete with that. Then I started seeing it across all of my friends who have daughters and I was like oh my god there's something really different between the, of the bond that takes place between a father and daughter. Like I just know my dad well enough to know to the point where it's the kind of thing w- where he listens to her like he doesn't listen to anybody else. And I told this story before where we had this atrocious looking family portrait hanging in our living room that was massive. My mom and I were like, take this down. My sister came home and she's like, we're not the Trumps, move it to another room. And he did instantly. It was one of those Uh. moments. There's something very special about the bond between them. And I realized I was never going to compete with that because my job wasn't to compete with that. But why is that? Why do fathers and daughters have the bond that they do that is so different from fathers and sons?
1: In, in all families, that's that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes yeah. if a dad was close with his dad, he'll be close with his son. Sometimes if a dad is broken with his dad or he was too close with his mom, he'll go in the opposite direction and become close to his daughter. So, you know, again, mm-hmm. we have to look worldwide and statewide and citywide, and we have to look at um, our parents' relationships with their parents And what was flowing and what wasn't flowing, and then how they're striking relationships with their children. Um, And again, you and I, both having early events that would break our bond with our mom, um, would recognize when other people have um, these loving bonds that we don't have. That would be in our radar, (laughs) because because the the deepest bond is mother and child. Because that bond begins in utero. It's actually the first bond, it's the first relationship. It's even before dad comes into the picture that we're already in relationship with our mom. And when something devastating happens to that bond, like she goes into postpartum depression, or in my case, there's um, events to the pregnancy and forceps deliveries and mom in the hospital, then we look at those bonds that other people have with a yearning because we didn't get it does does that does that make yeah, sense yeah
2: absolutely yeah, absolutely. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and start talking about the core language map. Um, you know, I know this might be difficult to do via audio, but can you talk about how somebody creates a core language map and and what it reveals? Um, and let's start, you know, with this idea of the core complaint. Because you say to hear the core complaint in our everyday language, we look for the deepest thread of emotion in the fabric of the words we speak. We listen for words that have the strongest emotional resonance to them.
1: Right, okay, so, so one of us will walk around with, with you know one of the questions in the core language map is um, tell me your worst fear if the worst thing happened to you, if things went uh, suddenly came undone, if things went terribly wrong if if things suddenly fell apart what's what's your worst fear, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? and when people answer that question, they come up with this Uh, what I call this very deep thread of this core language. For example, the answer that could be, I'll be all alone, there'll be no one there, or I'll be betrayed, or or, uh, I'll be powerless, or I'll be helpless, or uh, I'll be annihilated, or I'll be destroyed. That type of language, and I have that type of language, my language is, uh, I'll be destroyed, I'll be ruined, I won't exist, I'll be annihilated, I, you know, it comes from early trauma with, with attachment. So I've discovered, Srini, there's two types of this core language. There's attachment language that comes from either our attachment with our mom, her attachment with her mom, or our dad's attachment with his mom. And I call that Early trauma core sentences, early attachment core sentences. And then there's these generational core sentences, sort of like Sarah had. Um, I'll do some, I won't deserve to live. Another one is, I'll do something terrible. It'll all be my fault. Another one is, Hmm. um, I'll go crazy. They'll lock me up. Another one is, I'll be ostracized. I'll be sent away the way dad was sent away to boarding school. Or another one is, I'll be forgotten like our stillborn brother that nobody talks about. Or another one is, I'll, I'll hurt someone, I'll hurt a child. Um, this is generational core language. So I've learned to look, based on this language that, that we talk about, whether we're looking at something that, a wound that happened to attachment, or a wound that happened generationally that we're carrying. And, you know, just even giving your story, you've got both. You've got you know the attachment language of of I'll die alone, which is the baby's feeling of hey, there's no mother here if she's got postpartum depression. But you've also got the generational story of uh, every, I'll die alone because twenty people <laughs> in my family um, died alone. They lost their no. great love. They lost their wife. They lost their husband. They had marriages that didn't take place as you told me. They their spouses died young. So in a sense. You've got like a double barrel, double barrel shotgun uh, facing you, right? With, with two streams oh, yeah. of this language. So it's lovely, really, because mm-hmm. you've done all that deep work to isolate it. But it, it's so yeah. cool when we do this because it says, oh, my goodness, this is what I've been living. Stories that aren't mine. A generational story generational story or attachment story that is mine or a generational story that, that is an, that is heritable, that came to me. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Well, I remember the week I did it. I mean, I was in tears every morning. It was the most painful sort of cathartic thing at the same time. And it was so bizarre, but there's something that you say, many of us hold images that are painful images of our parents, not giving us enough images of not getting what we needed. Unchecked, these inner images can direct the course of our lives, forming a blueprint for how our lives will continue. And I remember reading that, and I don't remember who it was. A friend tried to kind of walk, maybe it was a therapist or a friend was like asking me about childhood memories of my mother. And I, I said, I, I can't come up with any that I look at fondly, to be honest. Right. Um, I don't remember any in which I felt warmth in any one of them. And it's, it's pain. As much as I hate to say that, I just don't.
1: Right. Well, y- you and me both, really, what we're sharing together is we have these early. Events, you know, people discount maybe the importance of postpartum depression, but we can't discount it. The baby is in such need of the mother's light so early to build a neurological um, safety in a sense. You know, our early experiences are, um, uh, there's a pruning going on uh, neurologically based on our early caregiving environment. And when these events happen, um, we then have these, uh, we don't have positive memories. Actually, I talk about that in the book. I talk about the negativity bias. We talk Mm -hmm. about where we only have memories that are um, painful of she was never there. She wasn't warm and loving. She wasn't affectionate. Those types of memories, because those we think are protecting us. For example, I refuse to be vulnerable and think of positive memories, so my mind is oriented around the negative memories, so I don't have to get the rug pulled out from under me. So we only have memories that aren't fond, which which is so powerful of you to even allow those memories to come and say, you know, I only have negative memories, which is like wonderful, because we're really digging right there into the trauma as to why something happened. You, you know, I can't, I can't say enough, Srini, how these early events affect us. Was dad cheating? Was Were mom and dad drinking? Were we in an incubator? Were we in an incubator? Was mom hospitalized? Were we hospitalized? Did they take a vacation too early? Did they send us to stay with grandma? For a week when we were only six months old, Um, were they fighting a lot? Were they splitting up? Were they separating? These early events have an effect on our safety and security that we're building, um, which people, which therapists would call, psychologists would call a, a secure, safe, healthy attachment. And when these events happen, it digs in, it breaks that attachment Um, And that can leave a scar or a wound that lives with us for a lifetime until we do what you and I did. We dug in and we saw, oh, that's what happened. There was this, you know, dad goes to school, mom's depressed. That's the story right there, along with the stories of everybody in the family. Sorry to keep using your case, but it's so brilliant. It's It's so perfect. But it's exactly how we... We operate. We have something from a mystery we live with that we can't explain. That's usually got two streams an attachment yeah. stream and a generational stream.
2: Well, I remember looking at this. I sent it to a friend. I was like, this is a Bollywood movie in the making. <laughs> yeah, and then my, one of my cousins said, just make sure everybody's dead when you write the screenplay. I was like, don't worry. <laughs> do right. Uh, one thing that you say you know let, let, let's talk about sort of now you know integration and insight because i think that was one of the things that was really beautiful for me was that all it took was doing the map to kind of say holy shit just that awareness alone made the fear go away but i don't think that's going to be the case for many people and it's not like that you know narrative doesn't still come up in my head of oh maybe i'm going to be alone it's a hell of a lot less after going through this just you know uh, for affirmation for the work that you've done but um one thing that you talk about, you, you say, you know, early in the chapter about healing, you say, reconciliation is mostly an internal movement. Our relationship with our parents is not dependent on what they do, how they are, how they respond. It's about what we do. And my immediate response was, thank God, because my reconciliation with my mom is definitely not going to be external. Right, right. I learned this from a therapist who was like, listen, you can battle your mom over how you load the dishwasher, or you can just load it the way she wants you to. He's like, you probably should do the latter because you're never going to win this one. Right, right. Uh, and so what I wonder is, uh, how do we begin to get to this path of healing, um, particularly when this reconciliation is you know, mostly internal, when I think deep down, many of us think, oh, it, we want this to be external?
1: So, you know, that's such a great question. Thank you for it. Um, people, most of us struggle with a relationship with one of the parents. And we would love to heal it, but we find that we can't. Every time we go back and try to heal it, You know, we're met with the same sort of um, energy that that tightens us or shrinks us or, uh, in in other words, the work has to be done internally. So in a bottom line, the way we heal, we've got to have positive experiences that can change our brain, bottom line. And then we need to practice uh, the new feelings and the new associations, the new sensations with these experiences and when we do this that's how we you know create new neural pathways or we begin to stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters in our brain like serotonin and dopamine or or feel-good hormones start to release like estrogen or oxytocin Uh, you know even our genes change so how do we get there like what do do we do Um, sometimes when we have a broken relationship with a parent which i find most common in most everybody I work with, we have to do this work internally. I might say to somebody, um, let's, let's have here, here's a practice I often do where I will have maybe someone put a photo of the mother that they can't heal with over the left shoulder as they sleep above the pillow or at the nightstand. And They might look at that photo before they go to bed and say, oh, Mom, I wish I could have this happen in life, but it doesn't happen. But I'm going to visualize that uh, when I'm sleeping, you're holding me the way you could never hold me when I was little, and that you're helping helping me feel safe in my body, helping me heal this break in the attachment. And, you know, I might even have the person say to the photograph, Mom, teach me how to trust your love, how to receive it, and how to let it in. And then go to sleep. So the so the visualization is feeling as you because that's one of the most important times for neuroplastic change, right before we go to bed. I might have somebody put the photograph of the mom that they can't heal with and visualize that there's a or she's holding us or there's a uh, some healing happening that's maybe uh, directed by some greater force, or we're visualizing her higher self, or some, you know, something like that holding us, you know, the good mother, the mother that could if she would, that would if she could. Um, and, but it, the brain, as I talk about in the book, doesn't care where the healing comes, it just wants the healing. And I spend pages and pages talking about visualization how it's as important as reality. So the brain doesn't know we're visualizing the mother holding us. The brain thinks we're being held by our mother. And the brain is healing, you know, the audio cortex lights up, the insula lights up, all these structures of the brain are lighting up as though it's happening in real time, as though our mother's really holding us, and we're just lying beneath a photo visualizing it. And we're healing. So, you know, that's only one of hundreds of practices that I'll give people um, to heal the relationship with the parents, even though it's broken.
2: Wow. So there's one other thing that I want to ask you about that you talked about when you talked about the core language of relationships. You said, for many of us, our greatest yearning is to be in love and have a happy relationship. Yet, because of the way love is expressed unconsciously in our families, our way of loving can be to share the unhappiness or repeat the patterns of our grandparents or parents. Now, I don't necessarily want to talk about um, how we repeat patterns, but when you talk about the way that love is expressed, this is something that really struck me with my parents. I think that, you know, when I learned about love languages, I realized that mine were words of affirmation, physical affection. These are two things that in the Indian culture are not very common, at least not in my family. And yet... I noticed that my dad will do certain things that are really bizarre, like he'll send, you know, three pairs of pajamas from Costco. And when I ask him why, I'll say, oh, they're on sale. Or he'll send us air filters because the air in our apartment isn't clean enough to breathe. And I realized those are absolutely acts of love. They're just expressed in very different ways than I necessarily wanted them to be.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I talk about that chapter, that's the relationship chapter that you're bringing up, you know, yeah. I, I'm talking about love. Looks often skewed by the events of our family history. You know, for instance, if we have a break in the attachment, we might have difficulty trusting love. Um, However, if uh, let's let's talk about a generational story. If our grandmom didn't like our grandpa, and our mom didn't like our dad, a, a female who's the next in line might have difficulty liking her husband, even if she likes him, <laughs> because she's part of this team, this unconscious team. And, you know, she's expecting that relationship to go poorly though unconsciously, generationally. Um, you know, You know, it's so interesting. I worked with this woman one time who loved this guy totally, and she wanted to marry him, and she married him. But as soon as she married him, she felt terribly trapped. And so we looked in her family history, you know, she goes, she said to me, I know he's the right guy. <clears throat> I know I love him dearly. Yet after I married him, I've been terribly depressed and I feel trapped. And when we looked in her family history, we saw in her culture that both of her grandmothers were given away as child brides, one at nine and one at 12, to much older men. And they lived these miserable loveless marriages trapped to, to these much older men where they were more like property uh, rather than um, living, vibrant uh, relationships. And so she, threw the trigger of being married, and I talk about these triggers in the book too, you know, there's these, um, I guess we're going in a different direction, but, you know, people ask me, Mark, what are the signs of inherited family trauma there are signs you know we i don't know if you want me to talk about them srini but, but yeah please you know, you know, okay so you and i we can be born with an anxiety or a depression and never think to separate it from the events of the previous generation that's true but but what i find are these signs we can also experience a triggering event you know a fear or a symptom It strikes suddenly or unexpectedly when we reach a certain age or we hit a certain milestone or event in our lives. You know, like this woman, she gets married and all of a sudden, um, you know, she feels trapped. You know, it's so funny. I worked with her and then I worked with her sister and her sister had coming from the same trauma. One of her sisters married a much older guy, 30 years older, just like the grandmothers. She repeated the trauma. And then the other sister I worked with never wanted to be married at all because she didn't want to live trapped. So we had to look at the events of the past. But, but there's other triggers. Um, uh, we can move to a new place, and suddenly we're depressed. But we don't realize it, but we're depressed like the ancestors who were persecuted or forced out of their homeland. And that gets triggered by moving across town. Or we can get rejected by our partner, and even though we've only dated this person two or three months, we've got this grief that's insurmountable, and it takes us back to a much earlier grief, maybe that break in the attachment when we lost our mother's attunement, or we go to have a child, and it's as though there's this ancestral alarm clock that starts ringing inside us i once worked with this woman she was consumed with this anxiety and as soon as she became pregnant it started and and she didn't even know that you know i'm working with her i said what's what's going on and she said, i don't know i don't know i don't know i'm just anxious i'm just when did this start about about seven months ago what happened seven months ago i don't i don't know i that's when i got pregnant and and she was pregnant with this baby i said so and i asked that core Sentence. I said. So, what's the worst thing that would happen if you have a baby? And she goes, I- I'll, har- "I'll harm the baby. I'll-, I'll do something terrible. I'll harm the baby." And then I ask, "Had you ever harmed a baby?" Or she goes, "No, no, 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 no." And I said, "Did anyone in your family ever harm, even accidentally, their baby?" And she was about to say no, and then she said, "Oh my God! My grandmother, as a young woman, lit a candle." And she caught the curtains on fire. And then the house caught on fire. And and the baby was upstairs and she couldn't get the baby out. And then she said to me, but we were never allowed to talk about it. And in that moment, she made a link that she had inherited the terror from her grandmother. And then after that, you know, she and I could, we could break the pattern. But I hear this so much, Serene. Oh, that happened in my family. But we were never allowed to talk about it. And Mm -hmm. that I've discovered is one of the anchors that makes traumas repeat in our family history. You know, there's lots of traumas. Not everybody manifests these traumas. But, you know, I find that when the traumas aren't talked about, when the healing is incomplete, the pain or the grief is too great, or the people in our family history are uh, excluded or rejected because those are the bad people or there's not been uh, quote unquote bad people, right? You know, in the book I talk about, there are no bad people. There's just trauma. Um, but basically um, when there's not been any resolution, then aspects of these uh, trauma show up in later generations. Unconsciously we'll repeat the pattern or we'll share a similar unhappiness until that trauma finally has a, has a chance to heal. You know, I talk about this in the book, but Freud Freud, over a hundred years ago observed this concept of repetition compulsion, that until the trauma heals, it repeats. You know, the contraction of the trauma is ultimately looking for its expansion, and will keep repeating until it has fertile ground with which to heal. And that's what you did. That's that's, you know, saying, all right, enough's enough. You know, let, let me peel back the layers and see where this feeling is coming from. And, yeah. and that, that, that's how we heal.
2: So I, I want to finish by going over one last area. You know, you talk about the core language of success. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was money and how uh, and why we tend to repeat financial challenges. Like, why do we get ourselves into debt, even if we manage to get ourselves out? And I am definitely speaking through personal experience. Like, how can I break that pattern?
1: So we have to look at the source of debt, and I talk about this in my book, and the source of financial abundance. And a lot of times for us, as the baby, that abundance, again, is having enough and getting enough of the mother's light. So when that light gets dimmed because she goes into a postpartum depression, or in my situation, there's forceps, or she's in the hospital, or I stop trusting her love because there's too many separations, this idea of having enough and getting enough that's one source you know for me it's the first source i look of let me hear about how the early relationship with the mother goes and when the early relationship with our mother is abundant and she's there with her love you know she only needs to be there 20 30% of the time says edward tronick but sometimes there's enough wounds that aren't mitigated there's enough uh, breaks that never heal, where our inner experience is she wasn't there, she didn't give enough, there wasn't enough love, that she never held me. That's the memory, that's the feeling. That can be transposed, extrapolated, if you will, onto our financial solvency, our financial success. For example, no matter how much money we have, it's never enough. Or or we develop a pattern of squandering it or losing it, because that's what happened when we were a baby. We lost our mother's love. So we can't hold on to money, or we don't trust that we'll have enough. Um, so the first place I do look is with our relationship with our mom. And then I start to look at other things. You know, for example, our dad lo- starts to fail at age 40. He, you know, he loses all the family's money. And then all of a sudden we're 38, 39, 40, and we start making bad financial decisions. Or we look at uh, improprieties or events that happen in the family history. And I talk about this in the book too, where grandpa, you know, he cheated somebody and now we can't hold our money. Uh, or he received money off of the toil uh, of, of laborers that he didn't treat well. And it's almost as though we have an unconscious identification with those laborers, um, those victims. So, you know, the, the book is complex in that way, where I also talk about perpetrators and victims and parents and grandparents. You know, I go through, the whole, I put the whole kitchen sink in there. But, but it, it's, yeah. it, it's like we have to look at all of these places when we're talking about financial um, success.
2: Well, it's interesting to hear you put it this way because um, you know I'm I just turned 42 and you know it's in the last maybe two or three years that I started to sort of have real track you know traction and progress with my career. And my dad being a professor, I noticed it was right around the same age that his career started to actually finally turn around and take off.
1: Ah, oh, lovely, lovely. you What you're speaking about there is this unconscious merging with parents. It's almost it's almost like mom or dad, if you suffer, I'll suffer too. Mom, if you have a bad relationship with Dad, I'll marry someone, and I'll have a bad relationship with, with someone. Or or even, Dad, um, if you don't do well, I won't do well. And if you do well, I'll do well. You know, you're talking about these, again, these unconscious threads, these unconscious tendencies to mirror our parents' experiences. And then again, you know, the important thing, I don't know how much time we we have left, but the important thing is... This idea of how we heal, you know, I devote a whole last third of the book to how we heal to these experiences of these positive experiences, the, this language, these healing sentences, or these positive experiences that we can r- repeat daily, um, which which allow us to um, change the pattern. You know, for... You know, they're doing all this amazing work right now with mice. They're, they're learning that even traumatized mice can heal if they're exposed to positive experiences. It actually even changes the way the DNA expresses so they don't pass it forward into the next generation. And so, you know, mice heal with positive experiences, but we heal with positive experiences, experiences like receiving Comfort or support, which I talk about in the book, how to experience, how to receive from our parents support, even though there was no support ever given, or feelings of compassion for ourselves or for the, our ancestors or for our parents, or feelings of gratitude that we were given at least something, rather than focusing on the good, rather than focusing on the bad. I wasn't given anything. Recognizing, no, I was given a great deal. It was just that my parents had so much trauma, they couldn't give a lot. Or, you know, even as we know from mindfulness, feelings of practicing mindfulness or loving kindness or generosity, really anything that allows us to feel strength or peace or joy inside. These types of experiences feed the prefrontal cortex and can help us reframe the stress response, whether it happened to us when we were, you know, with a bad attachment, broken attachment, or whether we inherited that stress response from our parents or grandparents. But we can reframe it so it is a chance to downregulate, a chance to calm down. The, I guess the last thing I'll say is the idea is to pull traction away from the emotional brain, the the, the limbic system, the amygdala, and bring engagement to the forebrain, specifically, you know, the the the, the prefrontal cortex serenity. Where we can integrate these experiences, and our brains, our brains can change. Basically, we need to practice being with the good sensations, you know. And when we begin this practice, sometimes those feelings are not so good, you know. We we begin uh, being with the uncomfortable sensations in our body until we can reach into what's beneath them, the the feelings of uh, that are the sensations that are. Life-giving, like pulsing and tingling or softening and expanding or, or or blood flowing in our body or waves of energy, heat or warmth or, you know, and then being able to hold these sensations for at least a minute, you know, maybe even six times a day, that could be enough to change our brain.
2: Hmm. Wow. Um, this has been incredible. This has been incredibly deep. Uh, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Huh? First, tell me what unmistakable is.
2: I define unmistakable for the purpose of writing a book as something that is so distinctive that nobody else could have done it but you. It's um, immediately recognized as your unique contribution to the world.
1: You know, it's interesting. I, I think that I kind of said that, but I want to say it again in how we heal. We learn, with, we learn in our own lives to sit with what's intolerable, what's uncomfortable, what's horrible. For me, I had no choice, right? I, I'm blind in this eye, and, and they told me I'm going to go blind in both eyes. And, and, you know, I was forced. I was kicking and screaming, going into the inner body and finding, like you did, as we talked about with those horrible weekend you had of, or week you had reading the book while you're sick. Um, and crying pretty much every day. We have to go into um, what's uncomfortable, sit with it, learn about it, live in it and through it until we come out the other side. And then often, you know, people always say, "How do I find that my joy in life, or how do I find the my job, my vocation, my avocation, my my dream in life?" And it often sits on the other side of our hero's journey, our, our pain, our dark night of the soul. We go through that journey, and on the other side of that journey is this tunnel of light that we would have never seen unless we took that journey. And it's this. Um, uh, it, that's what makes us un- unmistakable, because we can only do what we, through our personal experience, are led to do. We can only arrive on a on an island or into the light, which often led through crossing a sea or or going through a, 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 a deep expanse of darkness that leads us into ah. Here's the light I found, and I can help others cross that sea or go through that dark, or I can. Um live in this light that only through my journey took me there through visiting what was uncomfortable, what was intolerable, living through and arriving into D- does that does that make sense
2: yeah, yeah, it really does wow, wow, uh, well, this has been breathtaking uh i First off, Ken, thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. I can't recommend this book highly enough to people who are listening to this. Mark, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, the book, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Well, well, the book is everywhere. It's in 20 languages. It's um, on, you know, on all the places where we buy books. Um, but they can also visit my website, mark, mark Wollin, M-A-R-K-W-O-L-Y-N-N.com. And they can um, learn about, um, you know, videos or my trainings or you know individual individual sessions if needed, that sort of thing. Or, or, or you know, I think a good place is on Facebook, uh, Facebook Mark Willin, because I list all the new studies, uh, the epigenetic studies every every week, um, so people can stay very current with this new and striking and startling field we call epigenetic inheritance.
2: Hmm. Wow. Wow! Uh, Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.